How is the sound level? It's good? Okay, great. So I've really appreciated getting to meet some of you in the practice discussions. Thank you for allowing me to sit in in some cases and for coming to talk with me. I feel like we are turning a corner in the retreat. Just has a feeling of going a little bit deeper, starting to have new experiences come up, starting to see new things. You may not see this, but we see this. (laughs) And it's good. Shift in the mind and the heart. It's no longer the beginning of the retreat. And yet the end is not quite in sight. So here we are. There are several places in the teachings where the Buddha talks about his motivation to embark on the spiritual path. And the most well-known motivation is that he wanted to know how to deal with the existential issues of aging, illness, and death. And what he says in abbreviated form in these more well-known passages is, why should I myself being subject to aging, birth, aging, death, sorrow, why should I seek that which is also subject to birth, aging, death, sorrow? Why not seek the deathless, Nibbana? But there are other places where he speaks more from his heart, almost emotionally, And I want to read a passage from the Sutta Nipata. So remember that he is not yet the Buddha. He's not yet enlightened. This is from Sutta Nipata 4.15, the discourse on being violent. Violence gives birth to fear. Just look at people and their quarrels. I will speak of my dismay and the way that I was shaken. Seeing people thrashing about like fish in little water and seeing them feuding with each other, I became afraid. The world is completely without a core. Everywhere things are changing. Wanting a place of my own, I saw nothing not already taken. I felt discontent at seeing only conflict to the very end. So the topic of tonight's talk is dukkha, often translated as suffering, but we'll talk more about the translations in a moment. So notice how the the Buddha-to-be saw the characteristics that Tara talked about last night, anicca and anatta, The verse says, the world is completely without a core. Everywhere things are changing. So impermanence and corelessness, also not self or emptiness. 
And these are intimately connected with this notion of dukkha. Together, these three are called the the three characteristics of the conditioned world. The three universal qualities that reveal themselves at some point through our insight practice. And so tonight we're going to be looking at dukkha in some detail. So dukkha is foundational to the teachings of the Buddha. It appears all across the teachings because it's the central axis of the Four Noble Truths, which talk about dukkha, how it arises, its cessation, and the path leading to its cessation. Many people come to Buddhist practice because of some kind of suffering. Not everyone, but many people, myself included. The first noble truth says, there is dukkha. It doesn't say, life is suffering. That's a misunderstanding. But it says, there is dukkha in a human life. Some people find it somewhat gratifying (laughs) that this is admitted right up front. Yes, finally, somebody said how it is. It makes Buddhism feel like an honest religion, if you will. The dukkha is one of those Pali words that is not captured well by a single English word. I think that's partly because even in Pali, it has multiple meanings, several different meanings. So dukkha has a specific meaning, sort of a literal meaning of of pain. In the three kinds of Vedana, or feeling tone, unpleasant feeling is called dukkha Vedana, literally painful feeling. So this is the narrow definition, narrow meaning of dukkha. But dukkha also has a broader meaning, which is the one that's in the Four Noble Truths. And this broader form is often translated as suffering. But that doesn't capture all of it. Other relevant, equally valid translations include unsatisfactoriness, unreliability, stress, struggle. The Pali commentaries explain dukkha as that which is hard to bear. And one of the Thai forest masters, Ajahn Mahabua, defined it as whatever puts a squeeze on the heart. So I like all of these, actually. I think each one captures a different facet of dukkha that's relevant at different times. So tonight, I may sometimes leave dukkha untranslated or I might choose a specific translation that's appropriate for the context. The direction that the Four Noble Truths aim is toward the end of dukkha, its its cessation. So the Buddha had eliminated all the forms of suffering and stress and struggle from his mind. And how did he do that? 
he examined Dukkha very carefully. In the first Dharma talk that the Buddha gave, he talked about the Four Noble Truths, and he assigns a task to each of the truths, something that we have to do in relation to that truth. And for the first truth of Dukkha, he says, Dukkha is to be understood. The scholar Rupert Gethin says, developing an understanding of the first noble truth involves not so much the revelation that Dukkha exists as the realization of what Dukkha is. I think for most of us, we have already had the revelation that Dukkha exists. So just in having a body, uh, we're very well aware that there's plenty of pain and suffering, um, etc. You just only have to open the newspaper and read the news to see the Dukkha out in the world, not here on retreat, but... Uh, you know, we, we can see that there's plenty of suffering going on. So why does the Buddha say that we need to understand dukkha? It's because actually we haven't fully realized what it is. We don't fully understand this phenomenon of dukkha. That's why we're still on the path. In that same teaching that the Buddha gave, he was very careful to say that it wasn't until he was completely sure that he had completely understood suffering that he declared that he was a Buddha. So it might be that dukkha is not quite what you think it is. So we need to learn about it. To learn about dukkha, first of all, we have to be willing to turn toward it, to look at it. So many problems come from not being willing or able to turn and face suffering or stress or unsatisfactoriness and simply see that. See it, feel it as it is. This turning toward is often our first act of wisdom. Now, it's part of right view, is the understanding that it's worth turning toward what is difficult. And the good news is, here's the secret, <laughs> turning toward dukkha is part of the path to happiness. It's a little counterintuitive, but see, see for yourself. So when the Buddha defines dukkha in the suttas, he covers a lot of territory. I want to read the, a classical rendering from this first discourse where he talks about the Four Noble Truths, and I'm going to leave dukkha untranslated. So he says, Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, illness is dukkha, death is dukkha, Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with what is not dear is dukkha. Separation from what is dear is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. Okay, that's clear enough. I think we can relate to 
all of those. Is there anyone who hasn't experienced at least some of those? And then he sums it up at the end with one more sentence. In short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. What? It doesn't sound like it goes with the other things. We're going to have a separate talk on the five aggregates. So I'm not going to be talking about them this evening. But this, uh, this tagline gives us an important clue about dukkha. It has something to do with clinging. The five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. So dukkha has something to do with what we are doing. Andrew Olinsky says, conventional strategies for human happiness entail various ways of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. The problem is that pleasure is not ultimately sustainable and pain is not avoidable. The shortcoming of our usual approaches is that they treat the symptoms rather than addressing the underlying causes of the predicament, namely that unsatisfactoriness is part of the very fabric of experience. Now, just to be clear, life is unsatisfactory when it is lived in this ordinary or conventional mode of seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. If we live that way, we tend to feel a kind of a constant sense of lack, of needing something, of being unfulfilled. There's also a tendency to feel insecure or guarded um, because it's so difficult to always get the pleasure and avoid the pain. Sometimes we just feel a little off trying to live that way. That's actually, I've actually used that as one additional definition of dukkha, which is offness. It's not very technical, but you know, that feeling of being kind of off, <laughs> dukkha. So let me ask you uh, about this strategy as far as getting 100% pleasure and 0% pain. Has it worked yet? And how many decades have you been trying? I know for some of you it's not very many decades yet, but when it gets up to be like five, six, seven, eight decades, um, do you think it's going to work? Yeah, so this little reflection suggests that dukkha has to do with how we relate to feeling tone, right? Pleasure and pain. So I just want to give one more quote about how it is when we act out of this feeling of lack or non-fulfillment. And this comes from Ajahn Suchito. Now, he names some specific things, and if you prefer, you can substitute your own version of these things. It's kind of a long quote, and that's the point. <clears throat> You'll see. Are you sure you're doing the right thing in your life? Maybe you're missing out on a really great opportunity somewhere else. Then these multiple options become a strain. Can you develop shamanism, play classical guitar, study ecology and cybernetics, have a successful, fulfilling relationship with your partner, your parents and relatives, and your children, 
come to a mature understanding of the political arena, grow your own organic food, and hold down a suitable job with the right kinds of people for the right ends, all at the same time? <laughs> and if any of these go wrong, or if you miss out on a really fulfilling experience, you're likely to feel disappointed or personally to blame. So cram it in and hold on tight. <laughs> yeah, so he's speaking to this feeling where it's hard to get everything in our life to be right all at the same time, right? In this conventional mode where we're aiming for pleasure and avoiding pain. And even if we do manage to get it together for a little while, we don't keep it that way, do we? I mean, it changes, right? So... So we're going to need to look a little bit more carefully at our strategies for happiness and this phenomenon of dukkha that, that plagues us throughout life. So either the Vasudhimaga or the Abhidhamma, I'm not quite sure, one of them, one of the later commentaries, offers a nice way to explore this territory of dukkha. And it's based on feeling tone, on Vedana that Andrea spoke about the other night, because that is so clearly linked to our experience of suffering, right? So we're going to look at, the, at three kinds of dukkha, um, but they're not really separate. They're really just three different facets of dukkha, but it happens that each one is easiest to see in relation to one of the feeling tones, Okay. And then one additional thing to, that's helpful to know as we embark on this is that dukkha is layered. So there are top-level layers and there are more subtle layers to dukkha. And on a long retreat like this, there's an opportunity to delve down and see some of the more subtle underlying dukkha, which I, I really encourage doing it, doing that. Because in my experience, dukkha is quite nuanced. And we don't understand it with just a casual glance. And when we see it in this more nuanced way, when we're willing to kind of look down a little bit farther, what we see can really transform how we relate to dukkha in our life. It transforms our, our understanding of dukkha at all the different layers or levels. So let's take a look. So the first kind of dukkha is most easily seen in relation to unpleasant feeling tone. And it's the, the kind of obvious suffering that we all know. Aging, illness, death, difficult emotions like sorrow and depression and anger and despair. So it's kind of clear and immediate suffering. And it is appropriately called dukkha dukkha. <laughs> really, <laughs> dukkha dukkha. Does anyone not have experience with this? And I know there are people on this retreat who are kind of deeply into this kind of suffering right now. So you know, very much honoring that. And then there are also, of course, unpleasant aspects of our relational and community life. You know, we have to associate with some people who are not agreeable to us, at least most of us do relatives, co-workers of various kinds. Even the Buddha had to deal with misbehaving monks 
and a, a cousin who divided the Sangha against him and even tried to kill him. So we don't really escape that. Um, then these kinds of unpleasant things affect us at a given moment, and they also affect us across the arc of our life. It's kind of part of the deal here in the human world, right? And until we're awakened, this is the predicament. As Olensky said, pain is not avoidable. And sometimes we make that into a struggle, into a burden. So it is helpful to know, just to say it clearly, that physical pain and unpleasant feeling tone are not eliminated through awakening. So we know, for example, that the Buddha experienced physical pain. Uh, there are many examples of this in the suttas. One, one of the famous ones is that he is known to have had back pain. You know, he's an old guy walking around outside in India, living out of doors. And over time, his back got sore. And he would sometimes arrive in a new city and people would come out wanting a Dharma talk from the Buddha. And he would turn to one of his senior disciples like Sariputta or sometimes Ananda. And he would say, you give the talk. I'm going to go lie down because my back is sore. So, you know, it's, um, that's not exactly the kind of dukkha that we're eliminating. Physical pain does get mitigated through Dharma practice, but that happens because we reduce our mental reactivity to the pain. Andrea talked about the first dart and the second dart. So we still get first darts in terms of having a body, but the second darts of suffering for that don't come as we move along the path. So in this case, through looking at dukkha dukkha, we get the understanding that the unsatisfactoriness we feel comes about because of our reactivity to experience. So the problem is more inside than outside. And we can learn to manage and eventually release that reactivity that we have. So dukkha dukkha highlights the aspect of dukkha that is, that is pain or suffering. And it can feel sometimes like dukkha dukkha is all of it, but it isn't. It isn't all of it. There are other aspects of dukkha that are important to appreciate. So the second kind of dukkha is called viparinama dukkha. It's kind of a mouthful. And it's often translated as the suffering of change. And this one is easiest to see in relation to pleasant feeling tone. Tara talked last night about anicca, impermanence or inconstancy, the way everything keeps changing. And the implication of this is that pleasant things will end. And the Buddha even says this is a danger in pleasant feeling, feeling tone. You know, the, it's very gratifying while it's here, but it's bound to change eventually. 
But this word, viparinama, it doesn't quite mean just change, which is a kind of a neutral word in English. Uh, Viparinama actually means more like deteriorate or degrade or degenerate. It's the tendency of things to decline or fade or age, right? We can see Viparinama Dukkha looking in the mirror. I, I seem to have more gray hair than I used to. And, you know, we, it's true that we don't care so much when an illness fades and ends, right? We're happy about that. But we do care when our beautiful new car gets its first dent and eventually becomes old and worn out. I was just noticing, actually, this bell has a big dent in it, doesn't it? I don't think it had that when it was made. Um, And over time, it's probably going to get more dense. That's how it goes. So we know, we know that we have reactivity to pain, but we also have reactivity to pleasant things that are coming to an end. It can be, you know, sort of blunt reactivity of no, (laughs) but it can be more subtle also. I remember one time I was eating a piece of cake it was really good cake. I mean, it was it was moist, but not heavy. And the frosting was, you know, dense, but not too heavy. And it was just perfectly contrasting with the cake. And they were different flavors, but the flavors went together. And I wasn't too full, but I wasn't, you know, I, was just the, I had just enough room for this cake. So I was really enjoying it. So I enjoyed like the first several bites quite easily. And then I noticed that as the piece of cake got smaller, so mindfulness, you know, seeing, 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 through the seeing of the cake getting smaller, I noticed that I was taking smaller and smaller bites (laughs) as I ate this piece of cake, right? And even eventually then it did still disappear. But then I scraped the back of my fork across the plate <laughs> so I could get all of the frosting up, right? So, you know, we see this in all kinds of ways, especially when we have our continuity of mindfulness. We can observe the way we try to extend, you know, our pleasant feelings. And we can feel the difference between doing that and, you know, the, the wholesome Uh, part of effort where we try to prolong wholesome states. Going for the cake is not the same. It feels different. But we can, we can even cling to wholesome, pleasant states. So, for example, sometimes we may be feeling very settled in our meditation. It's peaceful, there's silence, there's stillness, very pleasant. And this is wholesome pleasure. This is wholesome pleasure that's worth uh, continuing on with. But then the bell rings. Oh no, my silence and stillness. Other people are going to be moving around. I'm going to have to get up and walk. It's going to be cold outside. So we're clinging to the peace, to the pleasantness. Now, of course, we could choose to sit longer. We can sit into the walking period. That's actually skillful to do. But even then, at some point, we're going to have to go to the bathroom or 
get something to eat or something. So even the best meditation states will eventually end on their own in some way. So Viparinama Dukkha highlights the aspect of Dukkha that is about unsatisfactoriness or unreliability. Things can be great at first. You know, there are pleasant things in the world, but they don't ultimately satisfy us and they don't last forever. Pleasure is not completely sustainable. Diamonds are not forever. So, as we get more skillful at managing our reactivity to both the painful and the ending of the pleasant feeling tone, then we can start to tune into the feeling tone that's called neither painful nor pleasant, also called neutral. Uh, it's actually, I mean, it's actually kind of a spectrum, right? And you have painful on one end and pleasant on the other. And then there's just this middle of the zone where it's not immediately obvious which way it is. And we call that neither painful nor pleasant. And this is the area, neutral feeling tone, is the area where it's the easiest to see this third kind or third aspect of dukkha, which is called sankhara dukkha. Now, sankhara is another word that has several different meanings. It's used several different ways in the teachings, and we're not going to go into those here. Um, but the word sankhara, the word roots of it, literally mean uh, to make together. So it means constructed or fabricated. And it also refers to the act of constructing or fabricating. So it's kind of both sides of that. And in the case of Sankara Dukkha, what's pointed to is that there is inherent stress in having to construct things. That's something that the mind has to do, and it has a little bit of effort associated with it. To make it easier to understand, because it is a little bit subtle, we can talk about this at kind of a macroscopic level, an everyday level. This isn't the classical definition of Sankara Dukkha, but I think it's pretty good. And it, it comes from Joseph Goldstein, one of our grandfather teachers. So he talks about how, to, he, he asks us to reflect on how wearying it is, it gets to be to do all the mundane tasks that we have to do for living every day. We have to feed the body, we have to rest the body, we have to move it or exercise it, we have to clean it, we have to get our clothing, we have to deal with our living quarters, and in the non-retreat world, we have to manage things like our cell phone and our car and our computer, maybe, if we have those things. And it's really tiring <laughs> to take care of all of that, isn't it? Um, and the older we get, I have to say, the more little things there are that we have to do just to keep our body functional day to day. So this is the ordinary stress of constructing a human life. It's just part of the deal. But Sankara Dukkha, so that maybe gives us a flavor, a little bit of what it feels like. But Sankara Dukkha is generally understood at, at a more subtle level, and it's so quite profound. It can be quite profound. And it's something that we might 
be able to see on a retreat, actually. In the suttas, the Buddha suggests that we notice the conditioned and constructed nature of even very refined states of mind. So, for example, states of concentration or collectedness of mind. These are conditioned states. They're made together, made of various wholesome factors that come together to construct them. And they hold together for a while, and then they dissipate when we're practicing in that way. Is there any dukkha in that? Certainly there isn't any dukkha dukkha. States of concentration are, all of them are pleasant or or maybe neutral. But even though that kind of neutral is pretty pleasant. Um, and the viparinama dukkha wouldn't come until it ends. But yes, even here, there is what's called sankhara dukkha. There is the effort that it takes to generate that state. And really any conditioned state of mind is the same. It's this aspect of dukkha that is translated as stress. It's actually called the stress of rise and fall. So things come into existence and they fall away. And just this continual process of seeing them come and go, come and go, and them being made together and then falling apart. When we're at a level of just watching that process, it starts to feel a little bit stressful. It's like, ah, it's just ongoing. The classical language says that a person realizes this is conditioned and volitionally produced. And at some point, as we start to tune into this subtle kind of stress, of everything coming, going, coming, going, the mind starts to incline toward wondering, how would it be not to put out the energy to construct? Obviously, we can't will that. An act of will is a construction. So we're not going to make that happen. But how would it be for even the Sankara Dukkha to end? That is a very interesting question. So we've explored a lot here about Dukkha. We've looked at Dukkha Dukkha that we feel in relation to unpleasant experience. We've looked at Viparinama Dukkha that we feel when pleasant experience deteriorates and comes to an end. And we've looked at Sankara Dukkha, which is most easily seen in neutral experience, where the very conditioned nature of experience has some stress to it. This is all part of the task, remember, of understanding Dukkha. So it's useful to tune into some of these kinds of Dukkha that you might be experiencing throughout the day. And instead of approaching it with reactivity or with kind of, you know, it's a downer to have to look at Dukkha, how about approaching it with curiosity, um, interest? What is this? What is this phenomenon? And how is it coming about? How is my mind contributing to it, if it is at this moment? So I want to 
spend a, uh, just a moment clarifying the distinction between dukkha as one of the three universal characteristics and dukkha as part of the as the first noble truth because they are slightly distinct uh, it's true that all conditioned things are dukkha in the sense of being ultimately unsatisfying because they're impermanent and they're also inherently a little bit stressful because of being put together by conditions so that's the you know, that's dukkha as a universal characteristic of the conditioned world but the four noble truths tell us that there is suffering only when we are craving that's the second noble truth or clinging or pushing away any of the varieties of those things so only when we are reactive is when we're experiencing this dukkha that's called suffering so ajahn suwat who was one of the thai forest masters who was a teacher for tanisaro bhikkhu he said it this way is a mountain heavy it may be heavy in and of itself but as long as we don't try to lift it up it won't be heavy for us so in other words mountains are heavy only if we try to lift them so yes all conditioned experience is dukkha but this is not a problem if we don't cling releasing grasping and reactivity is the end of suffering that the third noble truth is pointing to there are three verses from the dhammapada that talk about this also in a little bit different way all conditioned things are impermanent seeing this with insight one becomes disenchanted with dukkha this is the path to purity all conditioned things are dukkha seeing this with insight one becomes disenchanted with dukkha this is the path to purity all things are not self seeing this with insight one becomes disenchanted with dukkha this is the path to purity could it be that we are enchanted with dukkha has a spell been cast upon us such that we try to lift mountains you know we take things on as our personal burdens imbuing them with permanence but when we see these three characteristics of anicca dukkha anatta impermanence dukkha not self we see through that enchantment we put down the mountain and it's no longer heavy for us i want to offer the same quote from ajahn chah that tara shared last night but i'm going to add the line that comes afterward if you let go a little you'll have a little peace if you let go a lot you'll have a lot of peace if you let go completely you'll have complete peace and your struggles with the world will have come to an end so we began this talk with the buddha to be 
in dismay about the conflict and competition that he saw in the world. But through deep spiritual practice, he learned to stop carrying that mountain. He had no more struggle inside and no more struggle outside. And then, for the rest of his life, he worked for world peace by teaching people the practices that lead to letting go. So let's let go now of all these words and just sit together for a moment, unburdened by any mountains. So we have some time now for walking and then the chanting in the last sit at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.